Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew, or to, excuse me, Matthew. We did that for so long, <laughs> to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4, as we finish up the section uh, this morning that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And as usual, I always think, oh, we'll get through this in one week and finish in a few weeks, and it very rarely works out that way. But we will finish up this morning in verses uh, 1 through 4 of 1 Peter chapter 5. And of course, as has been noted, just to bring us back into it, Peter is here addressing in a striking way the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. He's been addressing throughout the, entire of, the entirety of his epistle the reality of suffering of his people. He established the theology of suffering in the first chapter, and then he gives instructions on how to suffer well and how to suffer for the glory of God in the remaining chapters 3 and 4. And here in chapter 5, he sums it all up with this striking address to the elders, to the leaders of the church. He merely says, the elders among you, the elders among you, he exhorts. And he exhorts because these are the ones entrusted with the care of his people. These are the ones entrusted with the word of God and ministering the word of God to his people for their comfort, for their instruction, for their joy, for their perseverance, and for his glory, as all things are for his glory. And so he's addressing the elders of the church, and we have taken time to look briefly at what an elder is, what an elder does, where an elder came from, how an elder functions as a New Testament office, as a New Covenant office in terms of their spiritual ministry that they've been entrusted with in the church. And we begin last week at looking at Peter himself, who he identifies or gives his self-identification as a fellow elder. Though he's an apostle, there's no confusion there in authority and office, but there is a unity, a shared kind of ministry that he has as an apostle, but also as an elder in the church, as an elder in the church. And this is one of the most important offices that Christ has given to his church. As a matter of fact, it's singled out, as we noted in Ephesians chapter 4, as a sovereign gift of the sovereign Lord to his church. And it is a sovereign gift of the exalted Lord to his church, not because of the persons themselves, but because of the task at which they have been assigned, namely to be faithful ministers of his word, to be faithful ministers of the word of God. And so the group there that he identifies as gifts to his church, as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, are directly associated with the ministry of the word. And of course, what makes them gifts is not that the church is led to honor them, the office itself, but that in the faithful execution of that office, it points back to the glory of Christ. It is a ministry of the word. It is that ministry of the word that is always pointing people back to the glory and the sufficiency and the majesty and the wonder of Jesus Christ himself. So his people are strengthened and given hope. And ultimately, even as he says in Ephesians 4, conformed to that image and the maturity and the glory of Christ. As each believer is equipped to think and function and live rightly as the body of Christ. And so how important it is that he addresses the leaders here to this group of believers who are suffering this group of believers who are suffering now and have a suffering that's only going to increase through the course of time. And so he reminds these, these group of men of their ministry and the 
priority of their ministry and the significance of this ministry. And he gives them direction in this ministry. Let me read the passage and then I'll briefly review what we've covered and we'll look at the final part of verse 3 and 4. So read with me here in Ephesians, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Let me get it right. First one. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What a hopeful message, what a hopeful exhortation that Peter gives to these leaders of the church. And ultimately, a hopeful exhortation to all of us to faithful ministry to the Lord. We noted first the credentials of Peter in his apostolic humility. He is writing to them not only as a fellow elder as he identifies himself, but he gives clue here too. He's writing to them as an apostle of Jesus Christ. One, in his authority to give the exhortation to these elders, but also in this little phrase right in the middle that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. That was the requirement of an apostle. We looked at that in Acts chapter 1. The only exception is Paul, who had the risen Christ appear to him in a unique way. But the apostles are those who walked with Jesus. And so as Peter writes this letter, he writes to them with the authority of an apostle, but also in that statement, the humility of one who witnessed the sufferings of Christ. He observed all that he endured. He, he observed all that he suffered on our behalf. But there's also the humility here of the Apostle Peter in saying that in reminding the church that he is a witness of those sufferings, they are also immediately reminded of his failure, his own failure during those sufferings. So he's writing to them who is one who is experienced, who knows, who understands, who has learned. He writes to them with humility, authority, and yet it is a humble authority. And in doing so, he himself is providing an example of the very thing that he's exhorting them to in their own leadership. And so he has full credentials to instruct the leaders of the church. Next, we notice the command that he gives in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And the first thing that, or what we recognize there, is that this idea of the shepherding ministry of the elders of the church has deep roots, not merely in this new uh, in this church or these leaders, but it has deep roots into the entirety of how God has pictured His relationship to His people. Going back to Genesis forty-nine, one of the first uses of this idea of God as a shepherd. God is a shepherd of His people. Throughout the Old Testament, God is pictured, the God of Israel, as the one who is a shepherd of his people, and his people are his sheep, whom he tends, whom he provides for, whom he protects, whom he cares for, whom he teaches. And in order to exercise his own ministry to his people, he has provided others who are, we would call them, under-shepherds, or they are shepherds. In the Old Testament, it was primarily the priest. And these priests had this privileged responsibility of being mediators of God to the people, and the mediating to them is truth, shepherding in them in the truth. 
And that was a responsibility and a privilege that God gave to them. And when that responsibility was not met, then God lays the blame for the waywardness of his people at the feet of the shepherds. And then sadly, as we noted, that was really the character of much of their ministry in the history of Israel. Ezekiel 34, as he did in other places we looked at, he rebukes them for not caring for a sheep. And so he gives this great promise and he says, but one will come who will be a great shepherd, who will be a perfect shepherd, who will fulfill and not fail the ministry of a shepherd where all of these others have failed. And Peter picks up on that idea again, even in 1 Peter 5, when he says, when the chief shepherd appears, that shepherd that was promised by God, that shepherd revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, the one who does not abandon his sheep, the one who, in fact, will lay down his life for his sheep, the one who came to give them life abundantly, the ultimate one who protects and who cares for and who loves his sheep. And he says, you stand then under the great ministry of the chief shepherd as his under shepherds, exercising his care, his love, his provision, his word, his glory to his people in his stead. As we all together, both in the office of elder and those, everyone in the church united to Christ, await his return, await for him to return. And then we noted what we began last week, thirdly, is the character of the character of these elders, the character of their ministry, the character of the men who will successfully and fruitfully and faithfully, more importantly, fulfill this ministry. And he says, you are to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but approving to be examples to the flock. And so he's addressing here then the character of the elders. He's addressing the character of the elders. And that is, as we're familiar with, the primary concern of God in identifying elders. There is giftedness, there is calling, there is, of course, because of the ministry of the word that I'll mention again later, there is an, an ability or a, a, a skill that is required to communicate effectively the word of God. And we noted that can take a variety of different forms, but it is basic to the fulfillment of the office to communicate the word of God. But interestingly, while that is the ultimate purpose or the ultimate end of their ministry, where God always places the emphasis in his instructions, both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, and here is on the character of the men who fulfill that office. The character of the men who will fulfill that office. And so he does here. And he does this by providing three groups of contrasts, three couplets, if you will, three, three ways that he, he gives a negative and then a positive attribute of the character of those who are to be elders. First two we covered last week, I'll just briefly remind you. I'll remind you first that he covers these these three areas of character in terms of relationship, in terms of relationship. The elder's relationship to God, the elder's relationship to himself in terms of his motive, and the elder's relationship to the people over whom he was giving shepherding care. The first is the elder's relationship to God. He says not under compulsion, but voluntarily. The, the idea of compulsion here, or voluntarily, excuse me, has the idea of pertaining to being willing or to do something without being forced under pressure. We noted that the primary character here that he's addressing is the elders' obvious and 
glad submission to the will of God. It's not a frustrated, grumpy, grumbling, arguing kind of attitude that he has towards the ministry that he called him to, that, that God has called him to, but he does it willingly, gladly. He sees it as a ministry entrusted to him by God, a ministry that has been gifted to him. Paul calls it a mercy, in fact, a merciful ministry given to the individual to shepherd God's people. It's not under compulsion, but it is voluntarily. It's a stewardship entrusted to them, and we talked about that a bit. But he is one in a more broad, in a, in a broader sense, we could say, is a man whose life is characterized by submission to the will of God. That's the, that's the broader kind of category. One whose life is marked by submission to the will of God as the clear pattern of his life. Then he noted, secondly, his character in relation to money, primarily, although it has broader implications. He says here, uh, in the middle of verse 2, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, at the end of verse 2, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not with sordid gain, but with eagerness. And this is addressing the elder's relationship to himself. In other words, his own motives, his own purposes, his own goals, his own intentions in why he would give himself to this ministry of eldership. Now, as we noted, that both in the Old Testament in terms of the priesthood and for the New Testament for a full-time vocational elder, one whose life is given totally to that ministry within the church, God has commanded that those who sow spiritual things are to reap material things. The idea there is not an employee-employer relationship, but it is the picture of ministry and of service. And so that the support of the church for the elder is so that they can be freed up to give themselves to the ministry that God has called him. That's the idea of it. That they can be freed up from the concerns of the world so that they might give themselves fully to the ministry of the word of God. But we noted as well that many of the false teachers rather used that dynamic to exploit the church and they did it for financial gain. And they, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 9 and in other places we looked at in 2 Corinthians, these false teachers went in and were actually accusing the Apostle Paul of taking advantage of the church, of doing it for his own interest, of taking financial advantage of them. And so Paul kills that argument, but it does show that that was an issue even in the early church. And so Paul had to give that warning even as he's giving instruction to elders in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus that you cannot be a lover of money. You cannot, the elder cannot be one who's greedy for gain. If that's the motive, then it is an unrighteous motive. And it is one that will lead to the ruin not only of the elder himself, but also to the harm of those to whom he ministers. So it, in one sense, kills the idea that sometimes is in the church that God will keep them humble and will keep them poor. That's not a biblical portrait. But it also kills that false motive of elders who can go into it for financial gain and for personal gain rather than for a spiritual ministry. And so he says, rather than for sordid gain, you are to be eager to serve with eagerness. Eagerness for what? Eagerness to serve Christ and to serve his people. And then he notes, thirdly, in the elders' relationship, and this is where we'll pick it up, to the church. 
the elder's relationship to the church. In his relationship to God, he's to be marked by a submission to his will, a glad submission to his will. In relationship to himself, he's to be marked by pure motives that seek service to Christ and to his church, not his own gain. And thirdly, in relation to the church, he is one who brings himself as a servant, not a master. He says, nor as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but being an example to the flock. Being an example to the flock. And this he is addressing then to those who would go into the office of eldership or desire that office not as a spiritual ministry, not as a labor of sacrifice, but as a means of a love of power and a love of authority. A love of being first. A love of relating to others as a master rather than a servant. As, as a lord rather than as a slave. And this is, of course, the opposite of the Apostle Paul, who said to the Corinthians, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am present, I need not use severity. He says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 10. But in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. So Paul recognized, in this case, his apostolic authority, but the idea of his leadership and his authority in the office that he held. He says, Corinthians, I rather, because of my great love for you, which he has been arguing throughout his address to them, I don't want to come to you hard, harshly. I don't want to come to you and exercise my authority that the Lord has entrusted to me that is real, but I don't want to use it to tear you down. I don't want to use it to punish you. Although he said he would, while he is gentle in his words when absent, he would show them the power of God in his ministry when present. He says, I'll do that. I'm willing to do that. But I'd rather not because this is an authority entrusted to me for your service. It's for building you up, he says, not for tearing you down, not for lording it over you, not for exercising it for my own personal sense of priority among you or primacy among you. Now, the underlying principle of Peter's exhortation here is the affirmation, though, of the spiritual authority that is part of the office of an elder. There is, in the office, a spiritual authority designed by God and how he relates to the church. With that authority, there's also a greater responsibility and a greater accountability. However, as with the right of support... As, while support is a part of the office of eldership or those who are given to it full time, Paul addresses the motive of that support, that it's for not for gain but for service. And so here, while there is an authority that is right and does come with the office of elder, he's again addressing the motive and saying the use of that authority, the proper understanding of it is to serve others, not yourself. And so again, this imperative here of how they are to shepherd the sheep addresses the character that must be of the elder that must be free from the love of authority and rather be marked by a love for Christ. Now let me note just a few things about this. First of all, it's important to note this, that the authority of the office of the elder is directly and exclusively tied to the authority of the word of God. It's not a personal authority. It is an authority and an office that has been entrusted with the ministry of the word. And that is so very important to understand. In other words, the authority of the elder in the church does not extend beyond their ministry of scripture. 
They have authority in as much as they are functioning in their role as teachers and counselors of the word of God. It does not extend beyond them. When an elder speaks scripture and exercises his proper ministry of the word and counseling and preaching and teaching and disciple and so on, and inasmuch as his ministry is consistent with a right understanding of scripture, then he has authority. He has a kind of authority in the church, an authority to make decisions, an authority to give leadership, an authority that should be respected by those among the congregation, inasmuch, again, as it's exercised consistent with Scripture. However, the, authority, the elder does not have authority in those issues where Scripture does not speak. And that's where it gets lording over you. And some of you have been part of churches like that, where there is this overbearing kind of authority of the pastor or of elders in which they want to micromanage and direct every portion of your life, what you can wear, where you can go, how you should spend your money, what percentage of your money, every detail of how you raise your children, so on and so forth. There's an overstepping of the bounds of the authority of the office of elder. They would want to come in and tell you your job choice and wield a kind of authority that says who you should and who you shouldn't marry, and so on and so forth. And that would be an abuse of authority. There is the one who wants to be controlling. We see an example of that. I think it's in 2 John of Demetrius, who says he loves to be first. He loves to be first. Uh, 3 John, excuse me. Verse 12. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I just, I just gave a, a bad reputation to a good guy. Demetrius in 12 has received a good testimony from everyone. Let's not give any wrong things to Demetrius. He is uh, blessed and with the Lord right now. Uh, but there is, within, in 1 John, di Diotrephes, excuse me, in verse 9. It's a D word. Diotrephes in verse 9. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Verse 10, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. In other words, Diotrephes, not our beloved brethren Demetrius, Diotrephes held the position of authority within the church. Clearly here he is an elder, he's some kind of leader in the church. But he held it as a means of his own personal kingdom and his own personal power. So much so that even those who came that were sent by apostles, he would not recognize their authority. He would not recognize their ministry if it in any way diminished or threatened his own. And it is sad, but that can enter into the heart of elders, even those who are elders within the church, even those who are within elders within the church. That love of power, even, even if it was not initially entered into for that reason, can for some creep up, can for some come to have a hold on their hearts and their attentions, and the church becomes not Christ's kingdom in which we serve and for which we are accountable, but one's own personal kingdom for which everyone else must obey and honor and serve the leader. 
And again, some of you I know have been a part of those kind of situations in those kind of churches. And Peter says here, that is not right. That is not good. That is not the character of a true elder. A true elder does not come into it with an exercise and a wielding of his own personal authority, but merely as a representative of Christ. So an elder has authority in as much as his ministry is consistent with the word of God. So an elder does not have authority to micromanage, as I said, your life and those things that are applications outside of what are clearly laid down in Scripture. But he does have authority to teach on the principles of Scripture. He does have authority to say what kind of thinking based on the word of God should guide the decisions that are made. He does have that kind of authority, and he does have a role with the church, and because of his particular ministry of the word, where hopefully he has a wisdom that he has and that is respected by the people. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 7, again, particularly his role as an apostle. But he tells them that he gives them his own his own understanding of what would be right for them in 1 Corinthians 7 in relation to marriage. He says, now concerning virgins, in verse 25, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. In other words, the Lord didn't command what I'm going to say. It's no direct word from the Lord. But as an apostle of the Lord, as one whose heart is in service to the Lord and who loves his kingdom and who loves you, he does have, and even sanctioned by the Lord as an opinion, uh, an opinion and thoughts about how they should conduct themselves in those situations, he says the first thing in, uh, same thing in verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7. Again, giving instructions related to marriage. He says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. If her husband is dead, she is free to be married whom, uh, to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the spirit of God. I have a ministry of the spirit within me. That is consistent with my own office and my own relationship and intimacy with Christ that enables me to give an valuable opinion that should be honored and should be respected. And so there is that kind of element as well. Now, of course, that is when that opinion applies to God's work in, in, in the case of marriage. That doesn't mean then that every father with a virgin daughter should tell her not to get married, right? Because in other places, marriage is honored. And the Apostle Paul himself exalts the honor of marriage. And even earlier in that epistle, he commands some or suggests for some that if you have a passion that is consistent and is distracting in your service to the Lord, then you should get married. Where there is the covenant of marriage and the proper place for sexual pleasure and desire and so forth to be met. So, but he does say that he is one who is trustworthy in his opinions and in some cases... Uh, the opinion of the Apostle Paul would, should hold sway because of who he is, and so it is with elders in the church. But the point being made here is that an elder has authority, a direct authority, only in as much as it is exercised consistent with Scripture. Consistent with Scripture. But notice what else he says here. He says, Nor is lording it over those allotted to their charge, or allotted to your charge. And this is a this is a helpful statement here. In other words, an elder has an authority in the office. They have a ministry of service and a responsibility. 
in one sense, as a Christian, we all have a responsibility to other Christians, but here he limits it. He provides a limitation. He says, those allotted to your charge. In other words, an elder doesn't have the same responsibility for every Christian as he does for those he specifically has been called to minister to. That's the idea. He has a particular portion of the body of Christ that has been entrusted to him. And this is actually one important reason why we have formal church membership. It is a recognition of those in, in consistent here of those who are allotted to your charge, those who are allotted to the leadership of Newtown Bible Church, those who are affirmed as having a credible testimony of the gospel, those who are affirmed as being under the shepherding care of the elders of Newtown Bible Church, those who have been allotted to your charge, those for which you will give a specific account to the Lord. It's an interesting word that he uses here, kleros. It's used in a variety of ways, but let me just give you a, a few of them to kind of give the idea of, this, of it here, of how he uses it. It can refer to a particular function or ministry. So in Acts 1.17, it says of Judas that he received his share, same word, of his ministry, his part, his portion of the ministry. He received it. It can be used of a specially marked object. Interestingly, it's translated as lot in several places. It's a, set, uh, a specially marked piece of clay that was, in this case, used to discern the will of God. So in Acts 1.26, when it says they drew lots, same term here, same term. They drew lots, and then the lot fell, of course, to Matthias. It can also be used to refer to a portion or a share of something such as an inheritance. In fact, the word that's often translated inheritance is this idea. It is to say our part and our portion in the kingdom of Christ. The word inheritance is this word kleros here. So, for example, Colossians 1.12, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And here he says, these who are allotted, kleros, to your care, these who are the portion, the specially marked out people, those who are identified as having been entrusted to your particular ministry. And again, as I said, a certain number of people for whom you will give an account. And so this is why, for one reason, why we have more formal membership. It helps to establish this relationship. It helps to establish this relationship, again, to mark those who are recognized by the leader as having a credible testimony of the gospel. Some churches do that by letter of membership. Some do it if someone's saved in that church by baptism in uh, in other cases, as people travel around, membership, formal membership, gives an opportunity for those leadership to recognize and say, yes, this is someone who we recognize is a believer in Christ. They understand the gospel. Their life manifests uh, a desire to follow the Lord. And we affirm them as a believer in Christ. And we affirm to them our responsibility to shepherd and to care for them. And so it has that idea. And it also then marks out those who are specifically then under the care of the discipline of the church. By marking those who are in, they can also be those who are marked out if there's unrepentant, consistent sin. And so it's important for that part as well. We won't chase that idea down. We've covered that in the past. But here it is, those who are allotted to your charge. But it has the idea of positive care of the saints entrusted to an elder in a particular location. 
Because this is the situation in God's design then, because there is this kind of dynamic of relationship of the leaders to the church, it is important and it functions well and it functions joyfully and it functions effectively and it functions fruitfully, primarily when there is a relationship of trust, a relationship of trust. And the kind of submission to the will of God and God's leading through his leaders is evident not only in the life of the leader who submitted to the word of God and in his life demonstrates that, but also to the sheep themselves, the people themselves. When there is that kind of relationship of trust, then there is a joyful kind of ministry. Uh, The writer of Hebrews addresses this in chapter 13. Really a significant passage, significant verse. for this uh, topic. He says in verse 17, Obey your leaders here, uh, almost certainly a reference to elders in the church. Obey your leaders and submit, implied to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words... As they seek to exercise their leadership in faithfulness to the Lord of the church and in faithfulness to the word of God, don't make it hard. Make it easy for them. In other words, be yourself obedient and joyful sheep to minister to. Let them do this with joy. In other words, you are the people, a significant process of that by whether... The ministry or the response to the ministry of the leaders is one of grumbling and complaining and constant find, constantly finding fault or of trust or of glad submission to the ministry of the Lord through them in the local body. But notice what he says to the leaders. They have the greater responsibility in this. He says they keep watch over your souls and they will give an account. It was said one time in a discussion about elders, and it was a discussion about the need for multiple elders and why that is, where there was one, uh, very similar to our situation here, which is why we pray for that. We spent significant time on that a couple weeks ago. But there was said during a conversation uh, uh, about just that nature of relating to the people of God, what's really the difference between any Christian who has a concern for the well-being of the church? What's different really than any Christian? Why, why is it more of a burden to have one elder rather than multiple elders? Well, the answer is here. Because why all Christians are to have a concern for one another, why all Christians are to minister to one another, why all Christians are to care for one another, it is only of this particular ministry that God says one, though, will give an account for their souls. One bears the burden so that when they stand before the risen Lord at his return, they will have to give an account for the Lord of their care of those people. And that's enough already, even when you have multiple, because each elder knows their own weaknesses, and they know their own failures. But there is this particular relationship that they have been entrusted with, in which they are here described as those who keep watch over your souls. And they will have to account to the Lord for that. In other words, this isn't then a ministry that is entered into lightly. As I mentioned last time, the seminary where I went, a common phrase was that if you can do anything else, go do it. Why? 
Because surely hardship is going to come. Disappointment is going to come. Discouragement is going to come. And if there is in your heart even the slightest chance of having an out, then you'll take it. And it's better to not begin the ministry than to begin it and not fulfill it and not complete it. And so one must have the right heart when going into it and realizing with eyes wide open, as it were, that you're going into a ministry for which you are uniquely accountable. And there is a kind of spiritual burden that comes with that. There's a kind of spiritual weight that comes with that. But it is one that is entered into happily in submission to the Lord and yet with a great sense of the responsibility. And so he says here, to these elders, that you are to minister to those allotted to your charge as servants, as servants. You're going to give an account for your ministry to them. The position of the elder then must be born not from a love of using people but for selfish ends, but to serve them as already noted. Let me just remind you quickly here of one passage. And again, remember that Peter is writing this as an apostle, the one who walked with the Lord during his essentially roughly three years of ministry on the earth, who observed firsthand his teaching and his life. And he knows what it is to view the ministry, or at least to see others. (laughs) Certainly, Peter wasn't exempt from this himself. But observe others who, even in such close proximity to the Lord, were able to lose sight of this. Let me just read to you a familiar passage. This is out of Matthew chapter 20. It says, The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her, verse 20, and bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are seeking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. A little overconfidence. He said, not, not unlike Peter. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant because clearly none of them would have ever had any kind of selfish motive like that in their heart. And so clearly they were of a righteous nature that they could look down and judge James and John here. But Jesus called all of them to himself in verse 25. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. In other words, the character of unbelief, the character of the unregenerate heart, the character of unrighteous leadership has broadly and generally this idea of seeing authority as something to be wielded for self and not for others. He says, you know the Gentiles lorded over them. That's how they operate. And great men exercise authority over them. We merely need to look in our own government to see politicians. While we can trust that maybe some have sincere hearts, we we hope so, and we know some are believers, that largely this is an office that seems to be entered into not as a means to serve others, but for personal advantage. Personal advantage. And he says that's common. That's always been like that. It's not new to our country. It's not new to other countries. It's not new throughout the history of the world. That's how... Human nature functions, fallen human nature functions. That's how the kingdom of this world functions. But you're of a different kingdom, you're of a different nature. 
He says in verse 26, it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when somebody walks into the kingdom of God and they see the way that leadership functions within the the kingdom of God, and the way that relationships function within the kingdom of God, it should stand in stark contrast to the kingdom of the world. That's why the young adults named their group 1335. They'll know you by your love. A love that stands distinct, is distinguishable, not only in the way that it works itself out, by, but that it is relationships that are clearly and obviously based on a trust in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and his ongoing love for his people. And so that then becomes the quality and the standard of ministry. It's a reflection then, this kind of leadership, of a true understanding of the gospel. A true understanding of the gospel. And so Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For those who are leading, for those who are in the church. And that is to be the kind of heart, then, that is reflective of this leadership. And it's needed in order to persevere in care. So who is the model of leadership? Well, again, the chief shepherd, the son of man here, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for ministry. And again, this is why the character of the elder is so important. It is a spiritual ministry. The ultimate end and the fruit of an elder's ministry is that the people to whom he serves or whom he serves should be more and more conformed into the likeness of Christ. That's a spiritual ministry. That has to do with character. That has to do with spiritual maturity. That has to do with maturity of faith. That has to do, again, with submission to the will of God. And so in choosing elders and in the ministry of elders, the worst thing that you could do is choose an elder for the wrong reasons. Worse than having no elders is to have the wrong elder, an unqualified elder, a misplaced elder, an ungifted elder. So you want them, but you want the right ones here because the consequences of that ministry are so significant, so significant. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 5 then, he reflects that. He says, Proving then to be examples to the flock. Examples of what? Examples of who? The chief shepherd, obviously. Of Christ. Christ himself, who was called an example to us. He uses a different term there. We mentioned it, but the same idea. An example to us, it's synonymous in verse 21. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Which in that case was his patient endurance of suffering according to the will of God and trusting himself to the Father. So here you are to be an example of who? The chief shepherd of Christ. In this context, it is to be then as a servant. As a servant. And so this is, of course, perfectly or wonderfully, not perfectly, but wonderfully and maturely displayed in the life of the Apostle Paul. Remember, this is spiritual leadership. Just listen, I'm just going to read a few verses and these are all the same term here, just to give you the idea. In Philippians 3.17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern, that's our term, you have in us. The pattern you have in us. In other words, we've lived our lives in a certain way in obedience to Christ 
so that you can look at our lives and say, I want to live my life and follow in those steps in the same way. And in as much as I do that, I too will be someone who reflects the character of Christ. Why? Because the leaders reflected the characters of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example, that's our word, to all the believers in Macedonia in, and in Achaia. So you became an example. Why? Because you imitated us. When we see believers, in this case, in terms of suffering, when we see believers suffering around the world and those who do it well, then when suffering comes into our life, what do we do? We remember their examples. That's why it's important to know church history. It's important to be aware of what's going on in the world. It's important to read biographies of those who lived life well. You have a pattern to follow. You have something you can look at. If you see somebody suffering or going through a difficult time, particularly, and they do it with godliness and faith, then when that comes upon you, what do you think of? You think of them. You remember how so-and-so did it. I remember how they responded. I remember how their character was demonstrated. I want to be like them. I want to have the same evidence of grace in my life. And that's the idea here, 2 Thessalonians 3.9. In not taking money, as in Corinth, we've mentioned that, to shut the mouth of their opponents, Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. He says, it's not because we do not have the right, but in order to offer ourselves as a model, that's our word, for you so that you would follow in our example. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul encouraged Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. Which just as a little footnote there means that it's an indication that it's not merely age, eldership, it is spiritual qualifications. I remember when I first came here 11 years ago that um, somebody said, well, let's see, I was 35 at the time or so, whatever the math is. But and that's easy math, but uh, uh, anyway, 35 or 36, 36 is what it was. So anyway, he said when I came here at the time, I remember one of the first things that was said to me is, you know, you'll be my pastor, but you won't be my elder. I just kind of cocked my head and go, that's an interesting take of it. But the point is there is that it's not uh, age, but he's saying to Peter, it is your character ministry. In other words, that you conduct yourself in the role with which you have been entrusted in a way that it can be followed and it can be an example to be followed by others. One more, Titus 2.7, Paul gave instruction to the young men and he says, in all things show yourself to be an example. That's our word of good deeds with purity and doctrine and dignified. So what's the summary? And then I'm going to briefly mention this last point. It's a ministry to be marked by contented. The eldership is a ministry to be marked by contented obedience to the Lord, a sincere love for the people of God, and a Christ-like service for the spiritual health of the church. That's the ministry that they've been called to. Now let's look here briefly at the end, verse 4. And we can look at this briefly because he's going to expand on this later. And so we'll just introduce the idea here. And what is the end of all this? He says in verse 4, the culmination, that's the last point, the culmination is the confidence of reward. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory. So what is the end of it all? What is the end of the toil and the sacrifice? It's presenting to Christ a faithful ministry to his glory and receiving from him the unfading crown of glory. What is this crown of glory? 
And is it related? How is it related to the glory that's to be revealed in verse 1? Is it the same glory? Well, the crown, as you may be aware of, has to do with a, a wreath that went on the head of a victor, and particularly in the, the games, but also on military leaders and other things as well. It was a sign, essentially, it was a symbol of victory, of success, of having won, of honor, of being recognized. That was the idea of the crown, which surely would have been the first thing that came into the mind of those who he was writing to. But it was symbolic then, this, 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 this wreath on the head at games or military and so forth was symbolic of victory. And it is that same term and the same idea that God himself draws from to put the picture of the glories of those who are a part of the victory of Christ and his salvation. And so that idea is used in many ways, the idea of a crown in scripture. Again, let me just read some of them to you so you can get the idea. The Thessalonians, Paul wrote that they, the church, were his crown of exaltation in the presence of the Lord Jesus that is coming, that he presents to them and he sees and the, the fruit of their faithfulness, the fruit of the reality of their spiritual life is to him a crown of exaltation, success in that ministry. He, James spoke of the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul spoke of the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To those suffering in Revelation chapter 2, John says this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In Revelation 4, in the great heavenly scene, the 24 elders had golden crowns on their head that they cast before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created at his return in glory to judge the wicked which picks up even on the scene of the return of the chief shepherd here in first peter john says this in revelation 14 that he one that he appeared as one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a harps and sickle in his hand so in the future there is laid up for us as believers crowns of life, of righteousness, of exaltation from a fruitful ministry, and here a crown of glory, a crown of glory to those elders who finish well. There is here a particular sense of reward. So while there is a sharing in the glory that he already mentioned in verse 1, this glory of Christ's kingdom, this glory to his return, the glory of salvation, he says that we are, he's a fellow partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. This is a crown of glory that is particularly promised to these elders who serve well. It has the idea of reward for faithful service. There is a glory that we all share, but there is also a glory that those who are particularly faithful will share and will know and experience in this coming kingdom of Christ. Now, we don't turn there for time, but in 1 Corinthians 3.12, it's a, it's a kind of it's a kind of reward that can be lost. It's a kind of reward that can be forfeited by unfaithfulness and a lack of faithful service. However, the nature of this reward is commensurate. It's, it agrees with the spiritual character and the motivation of what it pursues, that is, service to Christ. What is this glory? Well, of course, it's a sharing in the glory of Christ. It's a sharing in the glory of his kingdom. It's a sharing in the glory of his inheritance in the saints. But it is also a sharing in the glory 
of a ministry that was marked by faithfulness. And what will be the character of this reward? Greater service, greater capacity to experience the wonders and the joys of serving the risen Lord. So the crown of believers, by including the idea of reward for faithful service, is ultimately the privilege of being able to lay down that faithful service as an expression of worship to the king, throwing them down, as it were, at his feet. And unlike that fading crown of glory that can be received here, he says this is the unfading crown, the same term he uses to speak of our inheritance, our unfading inheritance. And I just want to leave us on this thought, and then we're going to wrap it up. Because there's a really striking contrast here. All of those uses of the term that I used in the epistles in Revelation uh, refer to these great anticipation of believers of what we will share with the idea of this crown. But that term is also used in the Gospels. And it's used exclusively, unless I missed a, unless I missed a reference, it's used exclusively to refer to the crown of thorns that was placed on the head of Christ as they mocked him with the purple robe and the beatings and so forth and the reed that they put in his hand. And so this is, a, this is no doubt then a striking contrast to the crown of glory, the crown, crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of exaltation. All of those that we receive is because he wore a crown of indignation, a crown of shame, and a crown of suffering. For us. And so there's no way that this could be for our own glory. It's his glory that we delight in. Even as we may be motivated by reward of faithful service, ultimately the end of that faithful service is because of striving after his glory. And so the reward will be consistent with that, which will be a greater opportunity to glorify Christ. And so it's all about his glory. It's all about the glory of God in Christ, both now and in the life to come. And that's what we anticipate. And that is where I said that's for every believer. Here addressed to elders, but every believer has that hope that whether you've been given a lot or whether we've been given a little, that we can be faithful with what's been entrusted to us and we can present it to the Lord at his return and we can honor him, again, whether in a lot or little, with a faithful heart and hear from our master, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And receive from him the pleasure and the delight of having served him well here. Well, let me close this in prayer. Our Lord, you are indeed the end of all things. Your glory, your majesty, your holiness, your wonder to be put on display. And all to the glory of the Father. And this is the design of our triune God. That in one being glorified, all are glorified. And how much more than in that great work of redemption. In which we with all of the redeemed of all ages. Will sing of your majesty together in the wonders of being called from darkness into light. Of being forgiven by the blood of the lamb of being called into your service. Help us to be faithful in all that you call us to. We do ask again that you would 
please, Lord of the church, bring to us that which you've given as a gift to your church, namely pastors, teachers, elders. Would you bring them to us and multiply them among us? We have, for these last few years, asked you for that and will continue to do so. We thank you for faithful shepherds that you do raise up and help all of us to be faithful in the ministry that you have called us to. Help all of us to be driven by the fact that we fixed our hope on the living God and that we desire to glorify you. Keep us persevering in this to this end and in this ministry. We pray in your matchless name, Jesus, who died and rose again for us.